Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Well, welcome to Church Online this morning as we begin a new teaching series, which we are calling Unsettled. For February and March, we're going to be studying together uh, one of the most famous of Jesus' sermons. Uh, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount, and it can be found in, cha- in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You know, some have called the Sermon on the Mount the most profound and in-depth sermon that Jesus ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount is by far Jesus' longest explanation of what it looks like to live as his follower and to, be, to live as part of the kingdom of God. And while I tend to agree that it is one of, if not the most significant of Jesus' sermons, it's actually not that easy to read, or at least it shouldn't be for us. And that's because Jesus is addressing his followers, highlighting the difference between the cultural values of the day and even how they understood their religious expectations and the way that he wanted them to live. In fact, I think a look at this sermon of Jesus is so timely for us in the midst of all of the cultural struggle that we've faced over the past months. It's important for us to be able to identify what it means to follow Jesus. So let me set the stage here for you a little bit. To start with, the sermon's setting is more complex than it might appear at first glance. Just before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we read this at the end of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, and all over Judea, and from the east of the Jordan River. At the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus sees crowds of the sick and afflicted that have gathered to follow him. Seeing so many people, he goes up, it says, on a mountain and sits down to teach them. Now, by doing this, he's taking up the traditional position of that culture of a revelatory authority. He's preaching from on high, on a mountain, it says, but in this case, it's really a large hill. Historically, this is the posture of the prophets or the messengers of God throughout the Old Testament. It's a posture that says, you need to pay attention. But he also sits down, taking the more relational posture of a teaching rabbi. This is actually a more intimate and relational posture. In a way, it communicates compassion and care. And in this sermon, you can think of Jesus as a very good pastor. And that'll be important because of what he has to say. So he teaches with authority, uh, but in this very intimate and relational way. And what's amazing is that at the end of this sermon, Matthew says, this is from the message translation in Matthew chapter 7, he says this, when Jesus concluded this address, uh, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything that he was saying, quite a contrast to their religious teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. Jesus' most immediate addressees for this incredible instruction are his disciples. Matthew 5 tells us that they've gathered around him. 
Now, the disciples are the ones whom we're supposed to identify with in this passage, who come near and form this inner circle of sorts. They're able to listen closely to Jesus. But again, there are others listening as well. So we should do our best to hear this sermon in stereo. On one hand, Jesus speaks to his closest followers. On the other, he simultaneously speaks to the crowds. He's teaching and preaching. He's advising and consoling all at once. Jesus is a good pastor. So Jesus starts his teaching uh, by going for the jugular. He doesn't mince words and he doesn't start with a joke or some kind of relational hook. Jesus' opening words are meant uh, to directly contradict the conventional wisdom of his closest followers. In fact, Jesus' words uh, in the Sermon on the Mount are actually quite unsettling to his hearers. Uh, So are you ready to be unsettled a little bit? Jesus starts by dealing with the question, who is, who are the blessed? Who are the favored of God? Uh, Let's read this together in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. It says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. Wow. So Jesus is beginning to challenge the conventional wisdom of his day and how his followers reflected that type of thinking. What's unsettling for us to realize is that Jesus's words are no less powerful in confronting the conventional wisdom of our day and how some of us might also live into that cultural reality. If we take stock of what we think and how we live, and if we had to make a list that honestly reflected uh, our culture, we would likely put as the most blessed, maybe the rich, the powerful, the healthy, the carefree, at the top of that list. And it seems natural to intuitively think that the richest people in the world with all their billions of dollars are somehow more blessed than, say, widows and orphans or people fleeing their country because of violent violence that they face. That sentiment would seem uh, maybe to be perfectly reasonable, but it would also be utterly upside down in the kingdom of God. And here's what's unsettling. Jesus is doing a bit of this reframing here. He's calling out the ones who think that they've got it all figured out. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Hey, everyone, here's the deal. You you are the so-called inner circle of my followers, but the true insiders are, in fact, down around the foot of this mountain, the empty-handed, the ones who feel (laughs) empty-hearted, the least of your culture, the maligned, the outsider, the persecuted, the one who faces the injustice of society. Those are the one whom God has provided for in spades. Listen closely, everyone. Jesus says... (laughs) 
And, and I pray that God is speaking to you all now because Jesus is calling out a way of thinking and a way of living and he's looking right at his disciples. Jesus is calling out those tendencies in us as well. Again, back to the list idea. If we were to put together a list of business as usual beatitudes that, that maybe lay bare the wisdom by which most human communities still operate today, it might go something like this. Blessed are the rich in things and in self-assurance. Blessed are those who are untouched by loss. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who are realistic about righteousness, compromising when they need to. Blessed are those who demand and exact an eye for an eye. Blessed are the crafty and the opportunistic. Blessed are those who are bold enough to fight. Blessed are those who, by doing good things, receive many accolades. Blessed are those who are widely praised and adored. Maybe that's what, what our culture would put as the, the beatitudes of our day. And this should be unsettling because I think Jesus knew this. And we actually find these to be true in our world, right? Even sometimes in our lives. And at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is confronting his followers and saying, even to us today, uh, confronting us with the hard truth, one of the reasons that we get unsettled uh, at times with Jesus and the Bible is because it tends to confront us with the truth that we are not actually following the way of Jesus. And at least, or at least not all the way. And we don't like it. We don't like to hear that. We tend to avoid things that are uncomfortable and things that unsettle us. But you know what? Unsettledness, uh, as uncomfortable as it is, is fertile ground for growth and change. It can be where the Holy Spirit convicts, where we become desperate for hope and there's no other answer but Jesus and his truth. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. Let the words of Jesus unsettle you, your heart and show you where you may need growth or reorientation back to the way and the message of Jesus. What's unsettling and uncomfortable is that when we encounter the truth through Jesus and the scripture, that truth can conflict with our ways of thinking and maybe even our daily actions. So here's the truth. If you read the Bible and you find a God that agrees with everything that you are and do, then you're probably not following the real God of the Bible and you're probably not reading the Bible correctly. <laughs> Certainly the Bible should uh, comfort and inspire us with love and, and, the, and the message of the rescue of God, but it should also convict and unsettle you. And that's not a bad thing because we have an enemy that wants sin to rule in our hearts and in our lives and wants the truth to get twisted and hidden from us. But the words of Jesus cut right to the heart in a good way, like a double-edged sword, the scripture says. It's not always comfortable, but God is always good. And I'd like to remind us of the goodness of God by using a psalm, Psalm 146, to remind us who God is and just the nature uh, of who he, and who he is and what he does. It says this, God made the sky and the soil and the sea and all the fish in it. He's our creator. He always does what he says. He's faithful. He defends the wronged. He's the righteous judge. He feeds the hungry. He is our provider. God frees prisoners. He's our liberator. He gives sight to the blind. He's our healer. He lifts up the fallen. God restores. 
God loves good people, protects strangers. He's our friend and our protector. He takes the side of widows and orphans. He's compassionate and he makes short work of the wicked. God's spirit works to shape and to change us, to transform us. The word in scripture is metamorphosis, right? Literally changed from one thing into something different. The trick here in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is to uncover what we might routinely take for granted and to, again, ask, where are we living into conventional, the conventional wisdom of the day? Where are, where are we living into anything but the way of God? And Jesus is saying, in effect, let me remind you of the ways of the kingdom and move you to reflect and ask some hard questions. Maybe these questions go like this. Where are we living with mis, mis, misplaced faith? Where are we living with a sense of self-sufficiency? Where are we putting our hope in earthly powers over that of God? Where are we living with our own version of the way things should be instead of following the ways of the kingdom of God? You see, Jesus made it clear that his followers should live in a noticeably different way than other people and the culture around them because his followers should hold to kingdom standards of love and selflessness that Jesus himself embodied when he died on the cross for our sins. He's giving us a roadmap in this sermon to the kingdom way, and he's attempting to reorient our faith and action. He's inviting us to cultivate kingdom tendencies in our life and faith, and that will lead to fulfillment and the proclaiming of his message. What is the kingdom way again? Well, let me read it, but in a different translation. And I'd like to read it from the message version. And the funny thing is that I hadn't read it in this version until about a month ago, but it's powerful. And it goes like this. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that you can't, that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of your being careful, you'll find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do and all heaven applauds, and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. The path that Jesus offers may not always look as appealing compared to what we see around us, but the further down the road of faith one travels, the more truth one finds. We discover that humility, unlike power, needs no defense. We realize that righteousness, doing the right thing, is its own reward. 
We find that a pure heart is much easier to live with than one filled with jealousy, resentment, or cynicism. Step by step, we learn that following Jesus and in Jesus, the kingdom way, even if we're persecuted for it, leads to a kingdom orientation and joy that nothing can take away. We want to be a people and a church of kingdom-oriented followers of Jesus, open to the movement of God's Spirit, becoming more like Him every day and helping others along the way as we point the way to Jesus, as we proclaim the love of God and take action, a, a loving action around us. The only way we can do this is through the teaching and example of Jesus, no matter how unsettling that may be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for this, uh, what we find here in Matthew chapter 5. Thank you for this Sermon on the Mount. It can be unsettling for us, but it can be reorienting to us, reminding us that we are kingdom people, that you've called us to think and live in a particular way. And so God, help in these next few weeks as we dive into this, just reset and reorient us. Uh, give us a passion for following you. Help us know who you are in a deep and meaningful way. As we learn, help us take loving action uh, in, in the world around us to others around us. God, I pray that as we are processing all of these things, as we begin to be unsettled, that we can connect deeply with other people that can help us think and talk and process, and that we reach out and invite others into the same process of formation and discipleship. Thank you for the way that you're leading us. We need this message in these days. Guide us and direct us. We love you, Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to worship together.